0: Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Anthropological, real life applications for very anthropological theories. My name is David Moore. I'm a Chicago based bartender, co-founder of Spill. And right now I am craving some sushi.
1: Yum. Hi everyone. My name is Kasira Hill, local anthropologist, graphic designer, and co-founder of Spill. Today, we're here to talk about cultural foods. And this is gonna be more of a conversation between David I and our amazing guest, about what our personal culture of eating food, what foods we eat, and how that kind of reflects who we feel we are. We'll expand on that. We're also gonna do the classic, real hard evolutionary theory in this one. So get ready for that as well.
0: And surprise everybody, today I'm gonna be breaking down your anthropological theory. Just (laughs) kidding. She's not qualified. So Kasira, take it away.
1: All right, let's get into it. I remember growing up my dad was prompting me to be pretty critical about the food that I was eating and I think that was an also a larger conversation that was necessary because I was growing up vegan and you know that got called into question a lot. Um My dad would say things like, yeah, humans aren't supposed to be eating the frequency of meat that we (laughs) are marketed in the United States. Or we aren't supposed to be eating that many grains or, you know, X, Y and Z. And it wasn't a point to be judgmental about other people's diets. It was just Mm -hmm. a prompt from my dad uh, to kind of be critical about the foods that I choose to eat and what the human body needs. And I feel like. That really transferred over beautifully when I attended my first food anthropology class because the food anthropology class is very much so talking about um, what foods humans are supposed to consume based on our evolution, based on the nutrients that our body needs or based on what our gut health gives indication towards or what our genetic variations give indication towards. So that class kind of you know didn't really draw any hard lines because again like in general anthropology is science theory etc but specifically it's hard to narrow down what humans are quote supposed to eat because not only do we have so many different types of expressions of genes that might um, inform our taste buds and our food choices and our health in general but we also you know have evolved to migrate and uh, and uh, adapt to our environments in a way that other mammals kind of don't have that ability and so let's get into a little discussion about this specific gene and maybe how that specific gene may influence some of these things and influence our food choices influence our food cultures right so we're talking about the tas2r38 gene underneath the general tas2r gene family those genes Within us are expressed at different frequency from person to person, general region to general region, and those genes specifically handle taste and bitterness taste, that TAS2R38 gene specifically does with bitterness taste. And bitterness taste, um, the expression or our ability to taste such has to do with helping us not eat foods that are rancid, bad for us, or um, might get us sick. These are also genes that are expressed in other mammals. Um, The frequency at which we express them is a little bit different. In biological and specifically medical anthropology, a lot of people are looking at this gene um, and how it is expressed in different people and how those expressions have to do with food choices, body mass index, addictive habits um, like smoking, tobacco, or Our general want or taste for alcohol intake. Um, There is seeing how these genes kind of play in with our physical and um, food choices. So we've identified that the TAS2R38 (laughs) gene is what tastes bitterness and the frequency at which this is expressed um, in humans, whether high or low indicates a taster or a non-taster. And the frequency of tasters versus non-tasters in our populations is super variable and usually balances itself out based on the studies that have happened so far. What I mean by balanced out is that most populations have a good diversity between high expressions of this gene being tasters and lower expressions of this gene being non-tasters. So if we know that this gene helps us identify bitterness that we're not supposed to eat, right? That being the kind of evolutionary point of this gene. Don't eat this food, it's bad. But if we have this gene, then why do we eat bitter or funky or fermented foods, right? Those are supposed to be indicative of, of something that we maybe shouldn't consume or could make us sick. And this gene also helps us identify bitterness that's in things that we should eat, like kale or heavy leafy greens. So, that begs the question then, why do humans, or why have hominins in general, um, eaten bitter foods? Well, the expression of the TAS2R38 gene in humans is a little bit different than the way that it expresses in other mammals. Our gene expression um, is a little bit more lax, which means that we have a more lax palate for bitter foods. If this be the case, then, and we know that we evolved from other mammals that have higher expressions of this gene, then why do we have lower expressions, right? We can't definitively say, because at the end of the day, this is science, but we can identify that if this expression is a little bit lower in not only our ancestors, but our human population on this planet right now, we can assume that it's been important for us to evolve alongside and create a palate for bitter foods, right? If this expression goes down, that means that we're becoming a little less sensitive to it, right? We're expanding our palate. And this is kind of cross-blending some medical, biological, and some cultural theory. But if we go with the fact that we need to migrate, the fact that we are mammals that occupy global environments with huge variations of food availability, we can assume that our ability to adapt to the different types of foods, the different types of things that are available for us to eat, and right, also preservation before uh, refrigeration, If it's necessary for us to migrate over long periods of time into new regions, we can assume that this kind of different frequency of expression of this gene has to do with our ability to kind of migrate and change our diets. So if this gene varies, we know that our bitterness or our palate for bitterness has changed over time and has changed over time in our ancestral line dating way, way, way back then we can assume that our migrational patterns and our ability to occupy different ecosystems has aided um, in this slight shift, right? Different expressions of this gene. And now we go from our biological kind of unpacking to a extension of cultural, right? Because if we're starting to talk about food choices, different regions, different actions in preservation of food and different ways of preparing food, now we're here to culture. Those different choices that we make based on region migration, upbringing, beyond our own genealogical expressions is what defines culture. So now we're talking about cultural foods boom, uh, made the connection. Hopefully that was clear. Let's shift
0: gears. All right, enough about anthropology. That's not why we're here. Just because the name of this podcast is Anthropological. I mean, come on. <laughs> so Kasira, I wanna break this down and get into a little bit of a kiki with you. I think the thing I wanna pose to both of us that I'm gonna pose to you is in regards to the culture, of Kassira Hill, one that I'm a big fan of. How would you say your culture, your daily life, informs your diet and what you eat? What is the Kassira Hill cultural food experience?
1: Um, It is a combination of could have more flavor tofu scramble and tofu items from our local grocery store mixed with a yearning for Ethiopian food, yet a lack of supply of Ethiopian food and a variety of Asian fusion appropriative uh, dishes that have things in them that don't belong there.
0: <laughs> well said. <laughs> so proud of you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. That I really, I was sitting here racking my brain being like, spit words out.
0: <laughs> I feel like do a lot, is a lot of the food that you enjoy and that you catch yourself eating a lot of sourced from another like restaurant do you order in a lot or do you make a lot of this food yourself
1: um I feel like it's half and half I definitely go through bouts of just eating like Thai food and tofu and and falafel and random vegetarian items Mm. from local shops um and then you know I'll go through a stint of eating you know pasta at home or something quick um I recently got into like frozen pre-made things that I can eat with like some chips and guac or something um, because I'm straight up sitting at yep. my computer for hours on the end. So a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think that the food that I love, I often go out to eat. What about you? I know yeah. you go out to eat a fair amount. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. You go out to eat all the time. You order it all the time, all the time <laughs> It's really concerning how much you don't use your kitchen.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> no. David, your apartment does not have a kitchen. and that's the first <laughs> I've ever heard of it. So I primarily enjoy eating food that I don't make myself because I'm not a very good cook. Um, I also under season my food pretty drastically. So, and that's not because I don't like flavorful food. Mm. I just catch myself making food Mm. in a very like simplified manner. Mm. Um, And
1: I've never heard of such a red flag before. It's like, I actually don't own any spices. (laughs) No,
0: sorry about it. My partner, (laughs) Matt puts everything in the kitchen sink in all of his dishes. Like his smoothie has 20 ingredients. And I start off every day mm. eating the same thing, a bowl of oatmeal with a slice of banana and a couple bar spoon bar spoons, ew, gross. There gross, I sound like a bartender. And a couple like spoonfuls of chia seeds. So mm-hmm. like, I'm a basic fitness person, white boy in the mornings. And then as the day goes on, <laughs> I like to go out to eat. And most of those places are probably somewhat basic too. But I feel like I catch myself eating a lot of salads with a lot of veggies in them. And then for dinner, I generally speaking, make like mm-hmm. a rice dish of sorts with protein and veggies. That's, that's my, all so my fitness informs my diet. I,
1: I was, I was ready to like, hear it descend into we start the day with beautiful oats and chia seeds and then we end the day with um a smoked sausage outside of the owl (laughs) (laughs) right i
0: the thing is is that like i have gotten better with moderation for myself because i'm really bad about when I started working out, I would go so far into the direction of just eating what I thought was healthy. And then I was always hungry. And I was like, well, this sure. isn't fun. And and I love eating. So this isn't enjoyable anymore. Same with like drinking. I'll either drink so much to where I'm like regretting it. And I'm like, God, this doesn't feel good. And then I'm like, well, I have to stop drinking completely instead of being like, oh, you should probably find a way to just be able to do All things right, in moderation. Hello. So now that I allow myself the indulgence of like, oh, like having some drinks with dinner or going out to drinks with friends, I try to balance the rest of my day with generally speaking food that doesn't make my body feel terrible. But like last week, I just moved apartments and I had burgers and takeout and barbecue and pizza every single day of the week, because that's all I was craving after a day of packing and moving. So for me, it's really it's very specific to probably the circumstances of what's going on with the day. But generally speaking, I find that like my current fitness journey that I'm on is very informative of what I'm eating. Yeah. Um, and that's just the tea, that's, that's just who I am.
1: Yeah. 100%. I, uh, often get the question if I'm ever going to eat meat and I'm going to tell you right now it's, it's never going to happen. And that's just ingrained in me. And maybe, you know, you, you were on the progress of like ingraining, you know, healthy choices, fitness in mind, body care in mind, uh, for what you need while also not going hungry. Cause girl, that's one thing I'm not going to do is go hungry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Well, that's that's the episode. So, (laughs) Bye, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think I'm excited to talk to our next guest, who is one of my best friends in the whole world. And Ed is going to give us some delightful perspective on his own cultural foods, what he grew up with, and also how it manifests today, especially with kind of uh, showcasing to other people his culture of foods. So let's get into it.
1: (laughs) Okay, hi Ed. Welcome. How's it going?
2: Hello. Going great. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, everyone, we've got Ed Hong with us. They are in Chicago. He is a bartender at Maple and Ash and he's also a property manager. And I um will also point out he's really good friends with David. He's on um, and he's joining. <laughs> And they were best friends um (laughs) and he's joining us to kind of continue the conversation about bitterness and palates and all of that good stuff um ed if you want to offer a little bit of space to uh talk about what you do and kind of your background this is that moment sure uh
2: i am uh korean american uh my mother uh straight from korea and my father from korea via brazil so my upbringing in terms of food and flavors are influenced by uh heavily by asian flavors as well as a little bit of south american um, flavors from my father's uh, growing up and yeah being a bartender uh you know tasting things whether it ranges from you know bitterness to acid to you know alcohol um, and and then sweetness obviously it's been it's been really interesting trying to cultivate and create flavors uh, that not only represent me, but uh, a whole other group of people. It's funny, uh, when when we discussed this prior about uh, talking about my upbringing or my, or my background in terms of culinary aspects or or, or that, um, I, th- I thought of this Korean drama I watched uh, early as a kid where there's a Korean kid uh, living in the Midwest and his mother makes uh, this, dish called kimbap, which is essentially like a, a roll of, of rice and seaweed uh, and proteins and vegetables. And everyone else in the school is having, you know, bag lunch, hot lunch, sandwiches, things like that. And everyone's like looking at this Korean kid with his, his lunch and uh, what a bully p- puts ketchup all over his food. And, you know, it breaks your heart. But, it, it you know, it, it shows how you know, when there are new flavors and, and things that people aren't familiar with, you know, it's it is it can be shocking. It can be you know yeah. eye opening. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was, yeah. It's, it's a memory I have. Obviously, that that brings me a, a smile today. Mm-hmm. But is that
0: why you get so triggered with like ketchup bottles at the table? Is that where that comes from? <laughs> always I'm just curious. I
2: always keep it just slightly away from <laughs> Yeah, me. I can't see it. Got it. So <laughs> that's said.
1: hilarious. Yep, that's hilarious. <laughs> Kids are the worst critics of, of oh, new food. Oh, yeah. Weird transition I'm going to make, but <laughs> kids are the worst critics of new foods. And um, it's not only because they're assholes, but also because they haven't developed a palate for something. Right. And, you know, setting aside Absolutely. the the sociocultural aspects of bullying a kid that has different food than you, uh, the introduction of certain flavors for humans, young humans, um, is something that we kind of develop. And, you know, earlier on in the anthropological section, I kind of broke down what the evolution of identifying certain flavors were, specifically bitterness. So it's like our mechanism of identifying foods that we shouldn't eat, flavors that are odd, and things that will potentially cause us harm, but we evolve a taste um, for things like super bitter foods. Um, you know, we evolve a taste for certain veggies or even like teas and tinctures and things like that. I remember getting a lot of tinctures when I was growing up. My dad was a hippie and I needed a lot of different supplements in his mind. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective and your background and what your kind of your family background is, what those first instances of bitterness or even just developing a taste for something um kind of where what were those first foods or what were those first kind of food groups
2: so in korean culture a lot of uh i mean in in a lot of food cultures right it it starts out with like preservation without refrigeration and so when you think of uh the best example is, is korea's national dish is kimchi um you know that is solely evolved out of preservation, you know, it's stored underground in clay pots uh, in the winter and would serve you throughout the year. As a lot of people know, it's it's very pungent. It's very salty. Uh, it has uh, spice to it usually. Uh, it can not uh, be made without that as well. One of the core ingredients uh, is like this fermented shrimp paste uh, or a seafood paste. And, and it's funky and it's sharp mm-hmm. and um, to a palate that also may not enjoy garlic or spice, like, like red pepper spice. And then adding this note of, of fermentation to it, uh, it is, can be very intense, obviously. And so uh, in, in terms of bitterness, I think I think the more savory uh, funkiness stands out first uh, in, in my upbringing.
0: Out of curiosity, was there a point where in your, like, friendships or just who you were hanging around, you either were introducing these flavors to them and kind of experiencing their, like, I feel like you've you've introduced me to so many new flavors, so I'm sure I've had my own responses to things. But was that also something that you went through was showcasing these flavors or introducing these flavors and these um, just ingredients that a lot of us have not grown up on? And sort of having to explain that this is actually right. pretty standard in your eating. For then they're like, wow, so you eat this all the time. <laughs> exactly. And you're like, well, yeah, this, exactly. Is, this is my cultural food.
1: You want to know if he's had the, the lunchtime experience where you're unwrapping your lunch and some white kid has run up to you. <laughs>
0: if you could unpack your trauma real quick, that would be great.
2: Can you
1: tell us about your food trauma? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. Exactly.
2: Exactly. No, I think so I think when when I am introducing uh, someone to a new cuisine, specifically Korean cuisine, there are different zones. So we'll start with Korean barbecue, right? Korean barbecue, if you're familiar, is essentially just cooking meat in front of you. It's been marinated in in some very standard um, marinades in terms of uh, garlic, ginger, soy. I've never met anyone who doesn't like Korean barbecue who uh, Mm -hmm. eats meat, essentially. I think a lot of people do um, kind of hesitate to share some of the, you know, deeper dishes of their culture, right? I think if if you were uh, being introduced to French cuisine right out the gate, I don't think they would start with a You know, I think something like steak frites, you know, something like that is easier on the palate. Yeah. So, so yeah, so for me, it'd be like, something like Korean barbecue or like, uh, like a rice dish, uh, called bibimbap. it's just uh vegetables and protein just mixed with rice.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, very, I mean, to this, to this point in our, in our lives in, in this location in Chicago, it is, it is kind of mainstream, you know, a, a lot of people yeah. do under, do know Korean food by the Korean name, which is pretty impressive. And, and, and yeah.
1: So I want to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about what we're seeing in Chicago. Um, I'm curious to hear what you've kind of seen as really being brought back into the mainstream realm in Chicago as it pertains to, (laughs) you know, these moments where folks are very inspired by their travels and decide (laughs) to open up X restaurant. Um, Y'all had a conversation about horchata. We've talked a lot about kimchi. David, if you want to kind of expunge on that and then toss it over to Ed, that would be great. Yeah, I think I'm just
0: I. I find it like, and Ed and I kind of talked about this yesterday. That there's a point in your bartending or cooking career where you get overly excited and inspired all the time, and you're like, "I, I, let's open up something together. We got to collaborate." Da da da. And a lot of it tends to happen around like brand trips and the times where you experience different cultures for the first time, and you're like, "Oh, we need to bring this to Chicago." And mostly, it's because like we grow up in like unseasoned food territory in the Midwest, and we're like, "Oh, you know what we really need is some." sumac on everything and like that's what i'm gonna do is open up a bar dedicated to that and so like i i like this conversation because it's sort of a conversation about appreciation versus appropriation and a throwback to like past episodes that we had about like exoticism and foods and how we're like sometimes just trying to profit off of another cultural food but also not then working with people that are actually within that culture so my kind of throw over to ed is just like your experience seeing More and more, um, like if it's Korean restaurants opening up or just seeing how this manifests in like bars and restaurants that we go to today.
2: Sure, absolutely. I think uh, in terms of, oof, this might be a a generalization that I don't want to put my name on, but.
1: Generalization disclaimer. Yeah, right, exactly.
2: (laughs) Not me. Uh, No, but when you look at cocktail culture in Asian restaurants, I think it's adjacent to what cocktail culture was in the U.S. in like the 70s or 80s. So when we think about like Cosmos, when we think about Hurricanes, when we think about that uh, class of, of cocktails, right now, I think we're seeing that in Asian cultures in terms of they're kind of sweet. Uh, they look like a lot of fun, but they, they don't have a lot. I mean, it's like beachy martinis or, you know, bubble tea cocktails, things like that. That's great. That's totally fine. But I think in terms of where cocktails are now in America and and other countries that do have uh very advanced or 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 a long history of cocktails uh, even like Japan um we're seeing cocktails that uh evoke balance as well as, you know, are ingredient focused. So uh the one the one uh exception to this is uh the cocktail program can I name drop restaurants? We love it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's a, there's an excellent uh, Korean restaurant uh, on Chicago Avenue called jong J E O N G, and I, I'm not sure if they have a lead bartender, but what I do know is that their head chef, their executive chef owner, uh, makes Korean cocktails, and mm. and so and we're we're pretty good friends, and so you know for me to approach him and be like, you're a chef, are you doing like are you doing like a chef cocktail program and and, you know, I tasted his, his cocktail menu and they're excellent and they do, they are very different. He does use Korean ingredients that are overly savory, but work beautifully with spirit and acid, you know, and bitterness. And so um, in turn, to talk about the flavors uh, specifically, specifically in a, a lot of Asian restaurants and cocktails, I think it is a little uh, similar to, you know, what, what the Cosmo is and was, you know, in terms of what we're seeing in Chicago, which which is great, is kind of moving away from just overtly bitter cocktails, and and going towards in- ingredient-focused cocktails, or or even even just like general right. flavors that we're trying to present in terms of like something refreshing and lovely, you know. Some I think I think for a while, a lot of, uh, and I'm guilty of this too. You know, we were just trying to create the bitter the most bitter thing in a cup we could and
1: yeah
2: try to try to tell you how, how you should like it you know and so yeah. i think um i think it's yeah i think it's nice to see you know the the cocktail culture at least within our zone um kind of going back to something that is more uh guest driven or you know or is to, to create an array of uh, mm-hmm. essentially a menu for guests to you know mm-hmm. have, have preferences
1: I think it's interesting that you bring up kind of ingredient-focused in beverage right now because I feel like there's – in the cocktail and beverage industry and and mostly driven by really amazing kind of -of out-of-the-box – culinary, you know, beverage folks is we get to create all these new flavors in cocktails that we haven't necessarily been able to make before um, or had access to, even if it's like imported liqueurs that have been been made, you know what I mean? Bitters that have long longstanding um, mm-hmm. histories in different regions or different, you know, uh, cultural cuisines. So I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because I feel like it's gone two directions. I'm seeing the light, easy, breezy, super digestible, bringing in really light flavors like um, citrus from Japan or really kind of those light umami moments. Um, and I'm leaning on that area because I feel like um, those flavors in cocktails are subtle, but they're also really leaned on for their kind of attractiveness as being new flavors. So taro things, lychee things, rambutan things, dandelion things, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But there's also like the other side of it. I feel like um, that beverage has gone where it really has. And you mentioned it leaning into that. How bitter can we go? How funky can we be? How effervescent or blah, blah, blah can we really lean into? How many different bespoke bitters can we have in this Manhattan riff? Please tell me it's all, you know, it's all too much. But um, yeah, it, as you were speaking, I just kind of started thinking about that because I'm thinking of bitterness as this really divisive um, flavor because folks either love it and have developed a taste for it or don't have that taste for it. And that's a lot of what leans I think people in beverage like especially when people are ordering their cocktails being like yeah well I don't like it bitter you know what I mean I don't want it to be too much so and I say that in an annoying voice but they don't want it to be too bitter and they don't want it to be too much and they don't want it to be out of their realm of their palate so they shift to something a little bit more easy breezy and I think those crushables those light and delicate cocktails are an answer to some of those very divisive bitter flavors that um, beverage folks and you know, culinary people that are exploring these new flavors or exploring how to infuse teas into stuff, et cetera, et cetera, are really getting into and have been getting into for a while. Yeah.
2: I, th- I think, uh, you know, you you said it It, it kind of goes into two directions. And I think, uh, I think that's a great way to put it. I think you could almost associate all of these different profiles of cocktails with different kinds of music, you know, like uh, in Chicago, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but we have Malort and yeah. I associate. Malore drinkers to like people who listen to alternative punk rock. And then I think about put me in the you know, basket. This such, yeah, there's an oh association with, you know, Tiki cocktails and, you know, rum culture, and then there's these light stirred cocktails that are, you know, vespers or, or whatnot. And and so it's I think it's very interesting when you when you say that. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, it's uh it it's in bartending culture I feel like sometimes we are tested to see how what our palate can take without a true
0: conversation about yes. is this good? I have a final thought about just the, this conversation about introducing these flavors to the people around you or kind of incorporating them into the menus that we write or we put forward. And it's a, it's a quick point, but essentially like, I think the thing that I've just learned over the years is that you we're not reinventing the wheel, um, especially us like white bartenders who have gone on some travel trips and are like bringing flavors back. And I think what gets to me sometimes is that it feels like bartenders are coining the uh, this uh, like oh I've discovered how to incorporate uh, Sichuan peppercorn into cocktails and like look at how creative I am. I'm. Like well this ingredient's been around for so long and you are not the first one to discover it. And um, and I think that's like where this conversation tends to come back to me for is that we just need to be more conscious and like responsible about putting out there like hey this is a cocktail that maybe was inspired by a trip I went but I'm not going to start saying that like all of my bartending now is uh it would be weird for me to be like all my bartending is Korean inspired because Ed took me to like a a restaurant once and I'm like I'm amazed it's like well you know you got to be responsible about how you are putting out your, your menus and then profiting off of it. And, um, you know, these are short episodes these days, so we can't extrapolate on that too much, but just wanted to add absolutely agreed I think, I think that if, if we're humble and,
2: and we are informed, I think that's the best way to start, you know, that journey. Uh, and then, yeah, like, like you said, just to reiterate, it is, a, a, an example. It is your version that pays a lot. Yeah. So much else.
0: Yeah. Thank you for taking uh, accountability for all your wrongdoings, Ed. I think it's important that you do that here, right now. This is an open space. (laughs)
1: Yeah, open space to breathe it all out. Um, With that being said, let's wrap it up here. Thank you, Ed, for joining us. It's kind of been this full circle convo about palettes and flavors and what we're experiencing and what we're seeing. And I feel like I've really loved your, your perspective here. So thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate y'all.
1: Great. Let's shift gears.
0: Another interview down. We're coming towards the end of another episode, but before we leave, I want to talk a little bit about what we maybe wish we could talk about more, or if we were to expand on this episode, what are some more things that are on your mind? Um, I can say for myself, one thing that I was just thinking about while talking to Ed is this idea of like foods that you don't have as a kid that are pretty commonplace foods in like the household that whether it's because your parents just avoided it in your cuisine as a kid or whatever it was. And for me, it's like in my late 20s, I am now only discovering the flavors of like mustard and pickles and things that I never had as a kid. I never tried mustard until uh, last year. Um, and so like discovering those flavors that are really cool and flavorful and go well on like everything I'm just now discovering, I've been eating dry sandwiches for 27 years. I really have. And Matt-
1: (laughs) Not a dry sandwich.
0: Always a dry sandwich, mama. Yes, it is very true. And Matt has been criticizing me for the six years that we've been together. And he's just like, David makes the driest food because he just doesn't put any sauces or flavors on it. I had hot sauce for the first time last year. And I just- um, discovering it all very late in life but it's also helping evolve my personal cultural foods and so that's kind of what i wish we could talk about more
1: yeah at the end of the day nobody loves a picky eater so at least you're trying the things and you're expanding the palate and we love that and we honestly we applaud okay
0: i i'm sure everybody else is picking up on the condescension (laughs) in her voice right now god
1: uh (laughs) yeah i think uh if if we could have another, you know, 45 to an hour to talk about this, I would probably, (laughs) which we don't. I think there's an interesting conversation to be had when we look at the privileges that we've experienced in being able to import more things from farther regions and uh, try new flavors and palettes, especially in the United States getting stuff imported here. But there's also a conversation to be had about like really... Um, making our food systems more environmentally sustainable because there are people out there right now that are losing access to their cultural foods and people that are losing access to the things that they once were able able to grow um, on their own property or in their own indigenous practices or whatever while there are places like us that are getting those things imported at a high rate that more likely than not are taking advantage of those of those other food systems or those other um countries so i think that there's something there about our access to the different food cultures that we can experience and i know we've unpacked this with jenny we've unpacked this with other people but the appropriation of those food flavors um that's giving very privileged
0: <laughs> it's giving. it's giving privilege
1: it's giving privilege um yeah i always want to unpack privilege
0: that could be another podcast <laughs> we could start It's called It's Giving Privilege. It's Giving Privilege. And we just talk about things that give privilege. Yeah. Well, but we're not. So you've listened to another episode of Anthropological. We appreciate y'all for listening. We hope you learned out loud with us. And uh, check us out on another episode coming very soon.
1: Thank you all. Cheers. Bye.